The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, July 27th, 2022, as we record a new show. For a moment, it appeared the White Sox would be two games above 500. For the first time since April 20th, when they were 6-4. and four. After trailing much of the game, the White Sox climbed back and took a 5-3 lead. Only to watch Jose Ruiz cough up a run, then Joe Kelly's right bicep started to bark, and Kendall Graveman had his worst outing with the White Sox. Colorado won 6-5, walking off the White Sox on a day that the Milwaukee Brewers crushed the Minnesota Twins. What could have been a road sweep resulting in the White Sox with a 50-48 record and two games back of the Twins. Instead, we are still talking about a 500 White Sox team that's three games back. It's almost been two weeks since Minneapolis, and the White Sox have made zero ground. Now, the trade deadline is just days away. On Tuesday, August 2nd, this has suddenly become an incredibly important weekend for the White Sox, as they travel back home to face the lowly Oakland A's. Is help coming? Should the White Sox even bother buying at the deadline? Let's address those points first. As joining me, coming back off the injured list, is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. Jim, it's great to have you back. Good to be back. Uh, COVID, as bad as they say. <laughs> yeah, the, the reviews are, are pretty spot on. Yeah, I, I, I dodged it for I'm... two and a half years, but uh, finally got me, so... Uh, appreciate James filling in. He was a big help. Yes. Much appreciative of James Fox stepping in in the last couple of episodes. And Jim, someone's I, I have a feeling that someone's going to have to step in for Joe Kelly. Uh, in his appearance today, he left the game after a strikeout. He was moving his arm around. Something was clearly bothering him. And his nerve issue in the right bicep in that particular part of the body, prevented him from starting the 2022 season on time. He departed today's game against the Rockies, what the White Sox are calling a right bicep injury. 
We don't know the extent of how serious this injury is, but the trade deadline is fastly coming. Does this force Rick Hahn's hand in having to make a move to replace Kelly in the bullpen? I think it probably cements it. I think, you know, based on his comments, based on just the inability of Kendall Graveman and Kelly to be reliable on consecutive days and forcing guys like Matt Foster into safe situations. And, uh, you know, we, we saw Davis Martin make a cameo and Jose Ruiz keeps bumping his head against his own personal ceiling. It, it seemed like, you know, Han was already going to add at least one reliever, maybe two. Uh, so I, I don't think this changes anything, maybe changes, if anything, the ceiling of the reliever that he wants to acquire. But, you know, at this point, I think it's more about bulk than impact just because, you know, uh, we saw it last year, the deadline with Craig Kimbrell. We saw it this uh, off season with trying to get Graveman and such. Like you can try to add high impact guys and try to make your bullpen scary through external additions. And it might not matter whether because the relievers are four months into a six month season and they might be wearing down or the games just don't get to them or they're just bad in small samples, you know, Stuff happens as we've seen time and time again. So I just, you know, wouldn't mind them seeing adding an R or two, but I just hope they don't like, you know, mortgage any significant farm town because we are seeing the diminishing returns of them. Uh, you know, whether it's trading guys, whether it's uh, the, the biggest contracts of the off season or, you know, it's $15 million, $20 million in off season. We're seeing the diminishing returns of guys who aren't supposed to play every day. And I'd rather see the White Sox, if they're going to make a big addition, uh, finally concentrated on somebody who is going to make an everyday impact. Yeah, I think someone that a team is going to overpay for is David Robertson, old friend alert, mm-hmm. with the Chicago Cubs, because it sounds like he is for sure the one closer that is available for trade. The White Sox know him well. Rickon is clearly not afraid of making any trades with Jed Hoyer and the Chicago Cubs. David Robertson, I feel like just based on recent tendencies of Rick Hahn, Jim, would be a target for the White Sox. But to your point, it just feels like because so many teams are looking for high leverage relievers that I feel like a team is going to overpay and meet the Cubs asking price, which is going to be worth more than what David Robertson's going to bring in return to a team that's acquiring them. But you have to pay that price if you want David Robertson, just because there's very few high leverage relievers available in this trade market. Yeah, I think I'd rather see them set their cap at Ryan Tapera or what Ryan Tapera cost. You know, I think, you know, that's that's kind of the ideal is like Bailey Horn losing him was no big deal. So if they have to give up somebody like, I don't know, Brooks Gosswine or whoever is the you know most recent version of Bailey Horn for somebody who has had a you know experience of pitching sixth and seventh innings with you know uh you know, various teams and uh, you know various uh medium leverage situations. He's not somebody who has to be handled carefully, you know, it doesn't have to be abused necessarily, but just you know, somebody who you know, ask Ethan Katz, like, hey, what do you think of this guy? Think he can fit in? Think maybe you can make him a bit better? Think he can, you know, think there's anything that needs to either be tweaked or high maintenance? Like, I think that was the, the drawback with Craig Kimbrell, and I think the Dodgers found that out too, is that when he goes to a new organization, he needs a while for the uh, 
coaching staff to figure out his keys and figure out just exactly like if he goes awry, how does he get back his movement? How does he get back his location? How does he get back velocity? And sometimes he doesn't, as we've seen. So I think, you know, maybe I would just look at it that way. Just say like, hey, we're not going to set our sights too high. We're going to look for like a seventh inning guy at most. You know, maybe talk to our guys and say like, hey, does this look like somebody who's simple? Uh, like, you know, who doesn't going to be high maintenance? Uh, throw him in there. And if he somehow overperforms, if he like, you know, looks great being the guy before Graveman and Kelly uh, and maybe looks like he's worthy more great. If he isn't fine, still better than like having Jose Ruiz there, Matt Foster there. So I think that's what I'm looking for just because, you know, we've seen it with uh, some shakiness in the starting rotation. We're seeing it with just the lack of everyday outfielders that they have that they just have bigger needs. And at this point, I just don't trust Rick Hahn to get a high leverage reliever who functions the way he should. So don't go there. Well, I'm expecting or kind of hoping the White Sox get Matt Moore from the Texas Rangers because I think he fits what you are talking about, Jim. Somebody that can help in the seventh inning of games, and he's having a good season with the Texas Rangers. But back to the trust issue with Rick Hahn. We know... Based on his comments, the White Sox are technically buyers at the deadline. Now, what does that mean? Are they in the Juan Soto sweepstakes? They should be, but they're probably not going to be, right? (laughs) Uh, However, there's there's some White Sox fans after uh, today's game against the Rockies that believe the White Sox should not add at all. Because it doesn't really matter in their view that whoever the White Sox add to the roster, the White Sox are not going to be good enough to get past Houston or New York. So what's the point if you're going to be throwing away, in their thoughts, high prospects again for more relievers? Like, this isn't working. You spent a lot of money on relievers in the offseason. It's not working. So it's put you in a spot before the trade deadline, having now to spend maybe some prospects that you don't want to lose for, guess what, more relievers. So, Jim, let's let's take away the fact of what Rick Hahn said. Mm-hmm. Should the White Sox add? Yes. Uh, I, I think that talk, I understand it, but it's kind of just like, I don't want to be hurt anymore. That, that's kind of where that's, that's coming from. Uh, I think when you look at the rich and storied, successful glorious history of the White Sox. Like you can't turn down a postseason appearance. You can't like just not fight for one. You can't white flag yourself uh, just because they're so few and far between, uh, you know, as we learned from, you know, last year going to this year and what the twins did from two years ago to last year, like you can't take it for granted. And if you have a chance to, uh, you know, knock the twins down and prevent them from getting postseason revenues and can, you know, just demoralize them a little bit, take some money away from them go for it. Like same thing with the guardians, like just make them poorer. Like that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Like, even if you don't believe in this team, even if you don't think that Rick Hahn can do it, even if you don't want to see him try, even if you'd rather just tune up, uh, by now and just, you know, see what they have on hand and then try to go for a bigger retooling in off season. Just, I think there's value in making the postseason in, in having, you know, that gate and maybe you get lucky. I'm not saying like, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not putting a whole lot of faith in the crapshoot and saying like anything can happen once they're in. Like, no, they're probably going to lose because this is a bad team playing poorly and just, you know, or not a bad team. It's a, it's an average team that uh, plays too poorly to be, you know, any better than they are for uh, 
a length of time. I think they've proven it. Like they're not going to get fundamentally better. Uh, they're not going to make marginal improvements on the coaching staff. Like this team is, you know, it, it's funny. Like, you know, mired mediocrity was uh, six years ago and they're here. They are hovering over 500 despite their best efforts to build their team from the ground up. And it's because of the same things. Like they just don't want to get better in ways that count, whether it's firing managers or overhauling coaching staffs or overhauling front offices. Um, you know, that that's, you know, basically the, the, the same issue time and time again. So this is going to be a flawed enterprise. So there isn't going to be a perfect postseason appearance. So you just have to take them wherever they are. The twins, I think are in as rough a shape as the white Sox. like their pitching staffs falling apart. They have their mm-hmm. own additions to make, uh, the guardians we've seen, uh, you know, their assets and their, uh, liabilities and, you know, they're, they're, you know, there's a reason why they are 500 like the White Sox. So it's going to be an ugly rock fight, but I, I don't think that's enough to give up on it. That I would just rather see like if they're going to spend meaningful prospect capital, I'd want it to be on multi-year solutions in the position player ranks or even like rotation ranks because they will have some decisions to make there too. Uh, but the bullpen, like I just want to see, I, I think I'm done with like, you know, spending every single acquisition period focusing uh on the bullpen because we see it you know week you know week and week again i should say like you know you know more than you know not quite day in and day out but like week and week uh the flaws of trying to build a team from the bullpen out because you know relievers get overworked in a way that position position players don't get overworked the way that starters don't get overworked anymore and that's just uh you know when you're winning winning every game five to four or three to two uh it just gives way too easily Good points, Jim. I agree with you that the White Sox should buy because they're not five or six games below 500, which was my fear that they could be at this point of the season where we're talking about, okay, where should the White Sox trade Jose Abreu? Since Jose Abreu is not going to get traded and you're still within striking distance of the Minnesota Twins, I feel like you have to try. Like, that's how I'm putting my mindset. This team has to play better for Jose Abreu because I'm with you. I don't trust Rick Hahn to make a good move before the trade deadline. I think he's going to make a move. I'm going to be iffy about how good that player is going to do for the White Sox when they put on the White Sox uniform. Mm -hmm. I don't trust Tony La Russa, obviously, managing this team. I thought he should have got canned in June. And here we are in late July, and he's still the manager of the Chicago White Sox. But as we record this, the Boston Red Sox just took the lead against Cleveland late in that game. So Cleveland could still only be a half game up on the White Sox. As you mentioned, Jim, the Twins are really down to one reliever that they count on. And when you look at win probability added for bullpens across Major League Baseball, the Minnesota Twins bullpen is almost ranked last in Major League Baseball. So they have, their house is on fire in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. and they're having to try to figure out what's the best way of putting that fire out. And we've known that they wanted to go after a starting pitcher, but they may be running into the same problem they had last year, which the bullpen collapses. And if that roof collapses on the twins, then the White Sox could continue going five and five and ten game stretches or six and four in a ten game stretch. And all of a sudden they're in first place because Minnesota and Cleveland stumbled backwards and allowed the White Sox. Yeah, Minnesota doesn't have their pitching coach. 
Right. Like they lost, I mean, that's, that's a huge loss. Like imagine Ethan Katz disappearing and then going, you know, leaving it up to Kurt Hasler. Like, and, and I'm, you know, I'm an Ethan Katz skeptic or not. Yeah. Maybe that's too strong, but just like, I think he's average. I think he's got some strengths and weaknesses, success stories, but like if Ethan Katz, you know, left for a job, like that would be a big problem with just how, you know, it's planned. So to see Wes Johnson leave and to see the, very uh, tenuous nature of the twins pitching staff immediately emerging. Like that's, you know, that's one big reason why I've uh, I, I, not quite soured on them, but just thought like, Oh, they're gettable because that's a huge blow because, you know, just, they weren't built to be like a, uh, you know, six to seven innings from their starters turnover, the bullpen, pretty simple to manage. Like it was, it was built around Wes Johnson knowing what to do with these guys. And they don't have Wes Johnson. And this weekend, while the White Sox come home and face Oakland, who's last in the American League West, the Twins have to go to San Diego. Mm-hmm. So there is an opportunity. Maybe our tunes change after the weekend, and all of a sudden the White Sox are within a game. Or maybe they caught the Minnesota Twins in the standings. That's why I still feel like they should add, and they should continue moving forward. Do I trust Rick Hahn? No. But what other choice do we have as White Sox fans or anybody who covers the Chicago White Sox. We're all in the same boat that we're just going to have to sit back, wait, and see. And who knows, maybe Rick Hahn can get lucky like he did with Johnny Cueto, and it turns out well for the Chicago White Sox. That's what we have to hope for, but I still feel like it's worth trying for the White Sox to continue moving forward. And I hope those that are in my mentions on Twitter screaming at me the White Sox shouldn't buy I hope you get a little bit more open-minded about that possibility. Now, I want to talk about Michael Kopech against Lucas Giolito, Jim. Because these are the Mm -hmm. two starters we saw in Colorado. Both showed their struggles. Kopech amazingly has his ability, Jim, where it just seems like he's really shaky early. Walks are beginning to pile up. But he's able to get out of jams, and all of a sudden you look at the fifth inning, and the opposing team is still scoreless. That is some type of talent Michael Kopech has. I wish that it was a little bit more streamlined <laughs> where he's mm-hmm. scoreless after five innings and he's only thrown 70 pitches. So he's looking like he's going to get through the sixth or maybe get into the seventh. Lucas Giolito. You can look at his start in two ways. One, wow, the Rockies only got two hits off of him from the second to fifth inning. The other way is, my Lord, that first inning was absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. And when I pull his stat cast data from his start, the average spin rate on his fastball is at 2,100 RPMs. His slider average spin rate, and I get it, breaking pitches don't break that well in Denver, but his average spin rate was below 2,000 RPMs. And I look at Lucas Giolito for the season with that particular pitch. He's averaging two inches fewer than league average with horizontal movement on his slider. Or his slider is getting 36% less break than league average. Like this is borderline almost he's throwing a cutter because he's just Mm -hmm. not getting a lot of break. So we talked about his fastball being a really struggling pitch for Lucas Giolito. And when I've been looking at his slider, you look at his slider overall for the season. It's late July. The White Sox need Lucas Giolito to bounce back. But Jim, instead of hitting the gym for Lucas Giolito and gaining muscle, he needs to go to a pitch lab. 
He needs to recreate a four-seam fastball, and he needs to recreate a breaking pitch because this is not working. And, and I envision more struggling appearances upcoming for Lucas Giolito because his fastball and slider are just not good pitches. Well, and the fastball only averaged 92, 91.8, you know, if you're, if, if you like uh, decimal points, that's, uh, that's just underpowered. Like that's, I, I think when Giolito is at his best or at his very good, um, you're looking at like a fastball 93, 94, uh, just a little bit of hop towards the top of the zone allows the slider to, pl- or a changeup to play up and then just makes the, the, the threat of the changeup and the fastball make the slider better. Uh, because it does have that little bit, you know, not a huge amount of break, like you said, like, you know, almost more of a cut sometimes than a, than a real dive, but just, it's enough. It breaks in a different direction than his changeup. And so it just, uh, he, he's, he's working in all directions, uh, rising up, uh, sinking down, fading, cutting, or you know, moving uh, glove side, boring in on left-handed hitters away from righties, however you want to put it. Uh, but when that fastball is just 92, and as you mentioned, like the spin rate is not like anything remarkable and he's not getting the carry. Like, I think, you know, you mentioned you, you're stacking him up against Kopech. I think that's a good combination because Kopech, as ragged as he was, he still had that fastball with hop, especially early on. Like he got some swinging strikes on the fastball up, but he was able to get that exploding movement, uh, you know, up and in on righties and was able to get some whiffs and some pop-ups and then you get some ground balls working down in the zone. So he had that kind of ability to uh, change eye levels and to change bat planes, or at least maybe, uh, you know, full hitters into not having the barrel line up with where they thought the ball is going to be. Uh, with Giolito, when he's throwing like 91, 92, um, he doesn't really have that. He topped out at 94 when he usually he topped out at 96, you know, sometimes 97. And I think that matters because, you know, the changeup, you know, when he was at his best, like he would throw the changeup kind of almost indiscriminately, especially when James McCann was back there, like just kind of, I can imagine if, if they had a, um, pitch com in McCann's day, like he just might be like, you know, making, yeah. I don't know, fart jokes or something like that with it. Just, you know, it doesn't really matter what you throw. Like, I'm just going to try to uh, play a melody with the dial tones or something just to, uh, you know, have some fun with it because they just could not track his changeup or his fastball, the combination of the two with the life that the fastball had and then the fade that the changeup had. And I think when the fastball is just meh or worse, uh, the changeup does not look that imposing off of it. And then, you know, that, that makes the slider be more important than it should be. So... I think it's just a, you know, we've seen maybe when we watched him in previous years, you're wondering like, why does this work? I think we're now getting the answer as to like, you know, how it did and why, you know, there's a thin line between it working and him being like a fifth starter. So, you know, as we're looking at like one through five, you know, and, and this has been a discussion over the you know, last several weeks, like Cease is obviously number one, Cueto's number two. Who do you have for three, four, five? <laughs> How would you rank them? Let me think. I got a steak dinner on the line with Lance Lynn, so there's a part of me that wants to say Lance Lynn, but honestly, it's Kopech. Because while Lance Lynn had a really good start against Cleveland, he's got seven starts where I can pull the film and be like, man, he's very hittable. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. he's got variations of fastballs, and I say that in quotes, but they all have the same type of shape in their... They're also dropping in velocity. We know that he's got the knee issue. And this is kind of why 
you know, if I was running the team, I'd be looking at starting pitcher because I have a hard time trusting Kopech, Lynn, and Giolito at this moment to come up big for the White Sox because they all have their faults. But I guess if I had to rank them right now, it'd be Kopech, Lynn, and Giolito. I think that's where I'm at. I think, you know, I would put arrow pointing up for Lynn, arrow pointing down for Giolito because I think we saw with Lynn's last outing how it can work. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, having enough power, having enough movement, having enough command on, on all four quadrants the way he needs to do it. And with Giolito, just the power is not there, and that's what concerns me. Yeah, so Giolito, I think he needs to recreate his fastball. He needs to work on his fastball. Stop putting muscle on your body frame. Work on your fastball. You need to get into a pitch lab and rework your four-seam fastball. What if he made his butt bigger? (laughs) Well, it's just that after this season, Jim, he's entering the last year of control with the White Sox. He's entering his last year of arbitration. Whatever pay raise that he was hoping to get through arbitration – I mean, that was already a very divisive conversation between the White Sox and Giolito this year. The two sides are going to be even further apart. If he is expecting a normal pay raise based on the season that he's having, the White Sox, I feel like, are going to win that case if it does go to arbitration as far as how much that he's paid in his final year with the Chicago White Sox. But your future earnings are on the line. Like, Just speaking about the player itself, whether he's on the White Sox or not, For Lucas Giolito, just last year, I thought he deserved the Jose Barreos contract. We're talking like seven years, 100 plus million dollars. That is a lot of cash. That is starting Mm -hmm. to slip through his fingers if he does not turn this around. And he's going to suddenly become like a four-year, $48 million starting pitcher because he's just lost his way. So this is a this is a turning point for Lucas Giolito. And I know that this is a wake-up call for him and the way he talks to the media and how he speaks after games. He knows that he has a lot more left in the tank and maybe he's also searching for answers. But you have the pitching coach that helped make you a major leaguer in high school with you. There's nobody that knows Lucas Giolito better than Ethan Katz. And we're still finding that Giolito is struggling. So maybe Ethan Katz is not the pitch whisperer that we all thought he was. But then again, Dylan Cease loves him. And if Dylan Cease loves him, keep him around. Michael Kopech. Now, Michael Kopech's slider is taking a beating since he went from the bullpen last year to becoming a starter in 2022. Last year, as far as vertical movement, he was two inches better than league average and the horizontal movement on his slider had an average of 9.2 inches of break. He had that sweeping slider, very effective. It was, he had 41% more break on his slider pitching out of the bullpen last year than league average as a starter. The horizontal break is just five inches. He is now 34% below league average in his slider. And I'm wondering what exactly is going on with this particular pitch for Michael Kopech because we know that the fastball is there. But in order for Michael Kopech to be dominant, we often see that slider being a very effective pitch for Michael Kopech too, Jim. And the Mm -hmm. slider isn't really working for Michael Kopech uh, as a starter this year. Is there any ability 
that he has where he can maybe learn from his days as a reliever last year and use it as a starter? Or do you think that this is a an endurance play that he can't throw his slider like he did last year because that just takes up too much energy? I think it's a little bit of that or maybe a little bit of the learning process of this six-month grind that we've been talking about with Kopech for years now. Just waiting to see if he can do it, what complications he's going to run into over the course of 100 plus, 120 plus innings. And I think, you know, this is one of the byproducts is just not having the power. Like, you know, you might have the power on the fastball, that's diminished slightly, but just we've seen that come and go. We've seen the, you know, slider come and go and, and not have the kind of, you know, uh, real devastating effect that it had in short bursts. But, you know, this is the, yeah, I'm hoping by the end of the year with Kopech that, you know, he gets through it. He does not, you know, the, the knee issue that he's been battling through or maybe just uh, was able to get past, but is also uh, hampering his top end stuff. Um, you know, he's able to get to the finish line, you know, rest over the course of the uh, fall and winter, and then go into the, you know, ramp up period in June, uh, January through March and just look into like, okay, how do I maintain power for longer? And, and how do I, you know, just, you know, what happened to my slider really address it then. But I think this year is all about survival and trying to contribute five innings at a time. I think it was curious that, you know, Rick Hahn mentioned that he has no intent on sending Kopech to the bullpen because he is the obvious candidate to move to the bullpen for an inning at a time. Although, you know, given the way he started games with, you know, initial struggles, like I do wonder if, you know, maybe it's not a great idea to, you know, all of a sudden transfer him to the bullpen and then need him to find his command right away. Like that might be a little bit precarious. So I understand why, you know, Han all, you know, said that he wouldn't want to do that, but I also understand like that he doesn't want to show a lack of faith in Kopech. And there's no point in talking about moving him before you have a pitcher who actually might, you know, merit a greater discussion among your team. Like if they were, if they acquired like Luis Castillo, you know, I think Kopech would say like, oh, he's really good. Or like he's proven, like mm-hmm. you, you look at the numbers game and say like, yeah, I am the least conditioned to contribute over the course of August and September. So yeah. And also I have the most recent experience in the bullpen. So I guess this is how it has to be, but there's no point in having that conversation and, telegraphing that to the media until you have that starter who's actually capable of rearranging the rotation. So I don't think it's entirely uh, closed off that possibility of returning the bullpen, but I think, you know, I'm looking at it as like, this is a project. Everybody's committed to it and it's worth seeing it through. Even if the, you know, he has to grunt through a lot of starts. One last thing about the sliders here for Lucas Giolito, Michael Kopech, as I'm paying attention to these pitches Lucas Giolito is averaging 1,971 RPMs for his spin rate on his slider. Michael Kopech is averaging 2,388 RPMs on his slider. Dylan Cease is averaging 2,841 RPMs on his slider. Yeah, I was thinking, like, he he almost gets to, I I think he's, you know, cracked 3,000 a number of times, right? Yes. So yeah. Lucas Giolito in this offseason needs to hang out with Dylan Cease and figure out how do I get more spin on my slider? Yeah, unless uh, unless the White Sox trade him. Unless the White Sox. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. We'll see. All right. So a little bit more positivity 
as far as our conversation about the White Sox, thumbs up the White Sox infield defense turning really key double plays over this series, especially in their two to one victory. I was really impressed. And that's, I think what ultimately bailed out Michael Kopech is that every time it's like they need a double play. Like we're during our watch party, Jim, the White Sox were able to turn that critical double play to keep the Rockies off the board. So that was a big thumbs up for the White Sox. A.J. Pollock and Yasmani Grandal. So Pollock's on this 7-for-23 run at the plate, and he's coming up with big hits to give the White Sox leads late in games. And Yasmani Grandal is 12 for his last 24, which for those that struggle at math, that's a 500 batting average. So A.J. Pollock and Yasmani Grandal are turning it on a little bit here, Jim. Offensively, does that give you hope that maybe both of them could catch on fire in August? A little bit. Um... I would say with Grandal, I like his, I guess just the visuals are a lot better than they were in April and May when he looked really stiff and just handsy slash armsy with his swing. Like it looks like a little bit more, they're pitching him away. I think they're trying to avoid his power. I think they're trying to test just how much he can, I guess, hit an outer half ball over the court, yeah, over 300, 400 feet. Uh, the right field. He's not really trying to do that right now. He's pitching. I guess he's hitting how he's being pitched. So that's good for now. And I think it's useful to just keep trying to thwart it while they're doing it. Like if they're giving him singles, great, especially when runners are on and he had that, that two run knock. And that's, I think, you know, pretty useful for this offense, especially when he's able to lay off bad pitches. I think that's a good combination. We've seen a number of White Sox hitters have to settle for singles and swing at a bunch of junk. And I think that's not very useful, but I think with Grandal's ability to, um, you know, know what he's swinging at and draw walks when they don't give him anything, like at least he keeps the line moving. I think with Pollock, I, you know, it's better. Um, it, it's just a case where, you know, I still wish like the 20 home run power were there and I'm not really seeing that right now. So he's among like, he, he, I kind of lump him in the Josh Harrison group of just guys who are like medium contact guys. And it's, can be useful and you know his ability to play a corner outfield better than you know uh andrew vaughn and gavin sheets makes him a little bit more useful in the field and rather see him up at the plate than larry garcia so it's fine i just don't see you know i'm not counting on like you know huge returns i'm counting on him being decent at times and like if uh, runners are on second and third, he comes a plate. Like I think there's a chance. Whereas I, I, in a way that you know some guys, I I just don't really have much faith in. But I still wish there's a little bit more impact contact. And you know who knows, maybe that's coming. But uh, I think you know four months into the experience, I, I need him to show me. Well, with the bases loaded or the runners in scoring position in recent games, AJ Pollock has pulled through for the White Sox since that second game of the doubleheader this past weekend against Cleveland. In game one, I'm thinking the White Sox have to DFA him before the trade deadline because of the way that his contract ramps up based on the amount of plate appearances for 2023 that he's not going to be worth that type of money that you don't want to be on the hook for that. Um, but if he continues to deliver for the White Sox late, you really have no choice but to, to swallow that at this moment and uh, be happy that A.J. Pollock is coming through in the clutch for the White Sox, which he has been. But unfortunately, his key hit to give the White Sox a 5-3 to three lead was for not, and the White Sox are still at 500 as they travel back home as they'll have six straight home games against Oakland and Kansas City. 
We're going to preview the first series of the White Sox at Oakland A's in a moment after a quick break from a word from our sponsors. Based on our data at Sox Machine, chances are very high you are enjoying a cup of coffee while listening to this podcast episode. And I love to tell you about Trade Coffee. Trade Coffee is a subscription service and it sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters. Small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest beans from around the world. Whether your friends call you a coffee snob or you just know it when coffee tastes really perfect. Trade's real coffee experts personally taste test over 450 roasts so they know exactly what to recommend for you, it's really simple. You just go to tradecoffee.com. You take their coffee quiz. After their coffee quiz, they line up what coffees best would line up with your taste preferences. And then you schedule when you receive your coffee. Because the truth is, what I like and what you like could be totally different. You will like a selection of specific coffees that are different from anyone else's tastes. So again, just answer a couple of questions on tradecoffee.com and you'll get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks. Trade delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you brew it at home and they guarantee you'll love your first order or they will replace it for free. As Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than 750,000 positive reviews. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash machine. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash machine and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash machine for $30 off. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Next for the Chicago White Sox, the Oakland A's come into town. And the Athletics are not very good. They're 38-63. and 63. They're going to be very popular in trade talks as they look to move some pieces. Sounds like they are open to moving catcher Sean Murphy for the right price. However, the Athletics just swept the Houston Astros. You heard that right. The Oakland A's just swept the Houston Astros. They have won three straight games in their last 10 games. The Athletics have won seven of them. 
On the road, they're 21-30, and 30, so they're better on the road than they are at home. So the Athletics are playing some pretty baseball as of late. That really shouldn't matter from a White Sox perspective, but we're going to talk about how poorly the White Sox play at home in a, min- in a minute. But before we do that, your pitching problems for this series for the White Sox. Friday, this game's at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. Lance Lynn's going to get the ball, so he'll start Friday night. Saturday night, this is a 6.15 Start time, it's a night game on Saturday. So this is back-to-back Saturday night games for the White Sox. It's also Minnie Minoso, uh, his Hall of Fame plaque giveaway night. So this will be very popular. Only 20,000 fans will receive it. Johnny Cueto is going to make that start. Opposing Cueto is going to be Paul Blackburn, the all-star for the Oakland Athletics this season. And then on Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time on July 31st, Dylan Cease will be making that start, and it lines up to be Michael Kopech on Monday night against Kansas City and Tuesday night, Lucas Giolito. So again, this is a six-game stretch for the White Sox against Oakland and Kansas City. Not very good teams. However, we have been saying it all season long. The White Sox are not a very good home team. And if you didn't get a chance to watch or participate in our watch party on Tuesday, Jim, this year the White Sox at home are 21-27. and they hit 241 as a team. They have a 302 on base percentage. They slug just 365 at home. That's a 667 OPS. That's 27th in Major League Baseball at home. Pitching wise, the pitchers have a 4.55 ERA at home. They're, that's 25th in Major League Baseball. The White Sox play like a bottom five Major League Baseball team when they're a guarantee rate field. Do you think these bad splits? these bad stats that we have seen and bad performances we've seen at home turn around with six straight games against the A's and the Royals. You should hope so, but I think, you know, the A's will pose a challenge in terms of like, we talk about how we would need to see the White Sox beat ordinary right-handed pitching, like respectable, uh, but unspectacular right-handed pitching. Like this is a pretty good dose of it with Caprillion and Blackburn and who else they've been throwing. Like the A's have been pitching pretty well this month. Uh, they're over 500 this month uh, on the strength of uh, above average run prevention. Their offense is one of the worst in the game, but they can, you know, string together some, you know, some decent starts to a decent bullpen, at least until it gets torn down with the trade deadline. So, you know, when you when you look at like righties like Caprillion and Blackburn and then you go to righties like, you know, like a Lou Trevino in the bullpen, like they're going to have uh, the kind of pitchers who give the White Sox a tough time. You know, so I think it's, you know, important for the White Sox to have decent showings. It's also important for a starter like Lance Lynn to not have that big blow up inning that puts him in the hole that changes the plans that Tony La Russa has for, uh, you know, laying out his winning bullpen versus his losing bullpen. Like this is a, uh, um, you know, the, the A's can't be overlooked. I think when you get to the Royals, we'll see what it looks like just because I think the Royals could be a pretty big mess with everything going on with them and the way they could be torn apart and with the way like their pitching staff is a mess. But I think the A's right now are playing pretty well, uh, given just how underpowered they are given just the, um, just the lack of caring at the ownership level, like just how little they're paying attention to uh, giving the fans anything to enjoy uh, this year. Uh, I think they're, they're a team that's least proven as the Astros have learned that they just can't be overlooked. 
Yeah, they've been playing, again, really good baseball the last 10 games. I mean, winning 7 out of 10, that is quite surprising. That's what jumps out to me when looking at the Oakland A's. But, Jim, I still feel like they got to sweep them. The White Sox should sweep Oakland here this weekend. And I say they should. Now, will they? That's a totally different story. But it's just, again, so disheartening because they're away splits. Like before the Rockies series, the White Sox pitching staff had a 3.47 ERA. And they only allowed seven runs in 18 innings against the Colorado Rockies in two games. So it's not like that's going to take a huge tumble for the White Sox pitchers on the road. That's third best in Major League Baseball for road ERA Mm -hmm. as far as the entire pitching staff. And they've got like a 725 OPS when they hit on the road. The White Sox are like a top 10 team in Major League Baseball when they're on the road. And it's just so baffling and just how poorly they play at home. And there's six games below 500 at home. And I feel like, all right, well, here you go. You want to get back to 500 at home. Here's Oakland and Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Get the job done. Like, that's how I feel about this six-game stretch. Like, no excuses. Here's your six-game winning streak. Get it done. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at the A's, too. Like, they're, they're one of the few teams that have hit fewer homers than the White Sox. Uh, they're hitting 214 as a team. Um, you know, the, the, the worst OPS in baseball, a 275 OVP also the worst. So whether it's drawing walks, whether it's hitting the ball over the fence, like this is an offense that should not, um, pose a unique threat to the White Sox at home. The way like, you know, teams, uh, like the twins can sneak the ball over the fence or, you know, the, you know, the Yankees or, you know, the Blue Jays, whatever, like the power teams, like this is, if the A's out homer the White Sox, or if they outwalk the White Sox, like that will mean that the White Sox have screwed up, and and I think that's you know I understand uh, what you mean about the sweep, and you know I always counter that by saying, well, you know sweeps are hard to demand, but we are getting to the point in the season, you know, watching the Mariners rack up win after win after win, like this, they need to get hot at some point to define themselves as a real contender. So you know, no time like the present. Right, and after the Cleveland series, everybody mentioned that. Look at the next 19 games for the White Sox. After they went 10-9 and against 19 games against the division, they've got 19 games against Colorado and Oakland and Kansas City. Then they go to Texas, and they go back to Kansas City for four games, and they're home against Detroit. Like, there you go. You should be like 13-6 and in this 19-game stretch. You should be seven games above five hundred. Because the next two weeks are not easy for the White Sox. A four-game home series against Houston, three games on the road in Cleveland, one game in Kansas City, and then they got to go from Kansas City to Baltimore. And Baltimore has been playing really good baseball as of late. They're still above 500. The Orioles have a better record than the Chicago White Sox. I can't believe I'm saying that. That's how it gets to August for the White Sox before they come back home for a series against Arizona, Kansas City, and Minnesota, their last longest homestand of the 2022 season. I just feel like, yeah, the expectation is you need to sweep Oakland. You, I feel like they need to sweep both teams. They need to go 6-0. and 4-2, okay, that's fine. You're back to two games above 500 in early August. First time since April when you started six and four. 
uh, on the season before you have this eight-game road trip to Texas and Kansas City where we know that they'll play better there. But if they're going to get where the Twins are right now and the Twins are six games above 500 before they go to San Diego, Jim, they got to win these next six games. And then if Minnesota sweeps the Padres, that's fine. You can, you're still within striking distance, but maybe you could catch ground of the wild card. Yeah, I'm expecting four and two. Just uh, this, this, everything is hard fought. Everything is, uh, um, requires a lot of labor and toil and uh, making it as difficult for the White Sox fans to enjoy this success as possible. Gotta love it. Yep. Is this the most frustrating season you've covered? Or was 2016 still worse? Oh, I mean, yeah, 2016 was worse. Uh, 2007 was worse until we realized, like, oh, there's nothing there. Um, and then 2011 I, was the most frustrating because Ozzie Guillen quit on the team. So, like, that's a case where just, you know, that, that, was, that was a case where, like, it, you know, it's, it still amazes me that, uh, you know, Ozzie Guillen and Kenny Williams are still making headlines for this team uh, 11 years <laughs> later when... <laughs> that year should have had them both fired uh, for just making a mess of things. And I mean, this is the White Sox. So you have uh, in the same like month, you have Williams, Guillen, Tony La Russa, and Hawk Harrelson all making headlines for a team uh, when their various reigns of management and, and coaching or what have you were ranging from like 1979 or 1982 <laughs> today. Like the hits of, it's like, uh, you know, light FM. The hits of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 10s, and today. Forever. The hits yes. of the 80s and 90s, forever. Uh, so everybody keeps track of the timeline here uh, as we wrap up this episode. Cleveland has just taken the lead against the Boston Red Sox in the ninth inning. Uh, so if you're screaming at us earlier that, hey, Cleveland beat Boston, I just saw the scoreboard update uh, as the Guardians lead by a run before that game wraps up. So the White Sox... Uh, didn't lose ground on the Minnesota Twins, but they may lose some ground on Cleveland in the American League Central race as all three teams are still tight as we enter the final weekend in the month of July. And again, if the White Sox do make any trades, visit SoxMachine.com daily. We'll be capturing as far as all of the rumors. And if breaking news does happen, we'll be covering that as well. And we are planning on having a Twitter space on Tuesday, August 2nd, during the afternoon, just like we did last year, it was pretty fun to do that because as breaking news was happening and trades were being announced, we are providing live our live reactions to those moves. And again, you can follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. It was fun when the White Sox were making those moves, getting a Ryan Tapera and then Craig Kimbrell right before the deadline. And we'll see if the White Sox make any type of moves on the deadline day. So we got something to talk about on the Twitter space, but we'll be covering all of the breaking news that happens around major league baseball, but that will do it for this episode of the Sox machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered Sox machine or you've been a long time lurker of Sox machine, you can help support us at patreoncom slash machine where our Patreon supporters, they get more, they get exclusive content. They get ad free versions of the podcast and website. And then they are the first ones to acquire our new Sox Machine swag. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. 
You're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.